It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 822 for the 10th of March, 2023. This week, version 2 of Affinity's photo designer and publisher apps give users surprisingly powerful features at a modest cost. In short circuits, Portable Apps, one of my favorite programs, has recently added more applications, including a lot of useful utilities and the ability to use specific typefaces wherever you are. T-Mobile continues to be the poster child for accidentally exposing information from its clients, this time 37 million of them. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2003, broadband was available to only about 10% of U.S. families. Now it's around 80%. Affinity recently released the second versions of photo, designer, and publisher apps, although some users have complained that the new features aren't sufficient for a full version number change. There are some very welcome new features and a few surprising absences. It may appear that there are three Affinity apps. Affinity Photo saves apps with an AF Photo extension. Affinity Designer uses the AF Designer extension. And Affinity Publisher creates files with an AF Pub extension. But that's a bit misleading. It should be clear to anyone who uses the three applications that there's a lot of shared code running in the background. What may not be obvious is that photo, designer, and publisher files are identical. The extensions are used so that double-clicking a file in the Windows File Explorer or the Mac Finder will open the file with the application the user expects. Because the Affinity applications were developed simultaneously, they have one big advantage not available to Adobe's apps. While Adobe shares some core functionality among various applications, it's obvious that the applications have been created at different times and by different development teams. As a result, the interfaces sometimes can be a little confusing. The resize function in Photoshop, for example, was unconstrained by default, even though I thought the more logical method would be to maintain the aspect ratio while resizing. When developers made constrained resize the default, they got more than an earful from users who found that change jarring. It's now up to the Photoshop user to decide which option they want as the default, and pressing the shift key switches between modes. But Illustrator retains the older default unconstrained and doesn't offer a way yet to change the default. Pressing the shift key changes the resize method to constrained, mimicking the earlier Photoshop behavior. Users do learn to work with those inconsistencies over time, but not having to think about them could be a plus for Affinity users. So what's new here? Affinity Photo has improved non-destructive raw photo editing to eliminate gigantic files that were common with version 1. More about that in just a little bit. Two new export formats have been added, JPEG XL and WebP. JPEG XL supports transparency, which is something JPEG doesn't do, 
So it's potentially a replacement not only for JPEG files, but also for GIF files, which can display only 256 colors. Google introduced the WebP format more than a decade ago in 2010, but it has been slow to catch on. WebP files are generally smaller than ping files of the same image, and they offer better image quality than JPEG files. If your browser supports it, you'll see a WebP image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The larger version of that file would be 3.3 megabytes as a ping. A JPEG version would be 575 kilobytes, but a WebP version, just 232 kilobytes. Big advantage there. Current versions of all major browsers support the WebP format, but those who use older browsers may not be able to view the images in that format. Unfortunately, the same is not yet true for JPEG XL. Although most browsers can display at least some JXL images, the ability is often turned off by default. Currently, Safari simply cannot display a JXL file, my preferred browser, Vivaldi, will display the files, but only after I visit the Experiments section of the browser's control panel and enable it. That's why you may not be able to see the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if your browser cannot display the JXL file, you can learn how to enable JXL display for Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Microsoft Edge, Brave, or Vivaldi by visiting the JPEG XL website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Except for Safari and Firefox, most browsers are based on Chrome, so if you're using a Chrome-based browser, examine the instructions for Chrome, Brave, and Vivaldi, and you'll probably figure out how to enable it on your browser. So there are two images on the TechBiter Worldwide website to illustrate the advantages of a JXL file. The images are identical except for the format. The JXL file is 143 kilobytes. That's 30% the size of a full quality JPEG file. The JPEG file, 466 kilobytes, three times the size of the JXL file. Warp and Perspective Control also have received substantial enhancements in the new version of Affinity Photo. Affinity Designer users seem to be most impressed by the new Vector Warp tool, which can be used to modify geometric shapes or even text. Objects that have been warped can be grouped, pasted into another design, and then further warped. For example, you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website an album cover with two bits of warped text and a warped shape. It could then be placed on an angled square and then warped to provide the proper perspective. Remarkably, text does not need to be converted to shapes before it can be warped. This means text can still be edited after being modified with the warp tool. Affinity has an excellent set of instructional videos, starting with what's new and quick start videos for each of the products, and then individual videos that address the use of specific features and tools. A new interface is apparent in each of the three applications. Some of the changes are subtle but useful. One example is the use of icons on layers. The icons indicate the layer type, which makes locating the layer you want to work with faster and easier. That's an important consideration in a photo, design, or publisher document that has a lot of layers. Affinity Publisher has added several functions to make placing text and images easier. These include an autoflow function for text that creates additional pages as needed in the document, and then flows all the text from an input file to those pages.
A more impressive feature can place dozens of photos that have been numbered in advance into a series of image frames in a document. Publisher finally has options for creating footnotes, endnotes, and side notes. If you're not familiar with side notes, and I wasn't either, they are similar to footnotes, but instead of being at the bottom of the page, they're placed at the side or in some other location. It's also possible to place an image in a document using an image's URL. Now, that strikes me as potentially dangerous because websites can be unreliable. An image that was present yesterday could be gone tomorrow. So the safer option would seem to be downloading the image before inserting it into a document. But if you're responsible for the website and you know the image will be there at least until you've published the document, it could be a useful feature. Studio Link is most useful in Publisher, but it's handy in the other apps, too. Three icons in the upper left corner switch between Publisher, Photo, and Design Personas. What this means is that the user can display the photo or designer interface and tools in Publisher. Affinity's objective was to produce a suite of apps that work together seamlessly. That's the main point of Studio Link. At its most basic, Studio Link allows photographs that have been placed in Publisher to be edited while still in Publisher. But some things are missing. Ventura Publisher had the ability to place a headline over multiple columns of text without a separate frame in the 1980s. Adobe InDesign finally got that feature in Creative Suite 5, released in 2010. In 2023, that is still a feature that hasn't yet come to Affinity Publisher. Some people have referred to this as the most important feature for publication design. I wouldn't go quite that far, but it is certainly an important feature, one that should be added sooner rather than later. In comparing Affinity to Adobe, it's clear that entire applications are missing from Affinity's offerings. Now, that's not much of a complaint, just an observation, and I'll come back to it in a bit. Affinity covers photography, design, and publishing. Does it matter that there is no equivalent for Acrobat, Lightroom, and Lightroom Classic, Premiere, Premiere Rush, Bridge, Dreamweaver, and Audition? Adobe's Lightroom products are excellent photo organizers, and Affinity Photo has no organizer function other than what's built into the operating system. The lack of a photo organizer function is probably a deal-breaker for anybody who's considering Affinity Photo as a replacement for Adobe Lightroom. Another potential problem for anyone considering Photo to use instead of Lightroom is the method Affinity uses for developing RAW files. Lightroom keeps image modifications in a catalog file, and most other applications write sidecar files that contain instructions for the modifications. The sidecar files are small, and the size of the catalog file increases only slightly with each new image. Affinity Photo requires that the user save the RAW file as an AF photo file. These images can be huge. In my tests of version 1, it wasn't unusual for the Affinity file to be nearly seven times the size of the RAW file from the camera. For example, an image taken at a local park with slightly under 24 megabytes as a RAW file while the AF photo file was nearly 167 megabytes. 
And that makes the Affinity file 7.03 times the size of the RAW file, even though the changes I made were minimal. Those who modify a lot of RAW images would be almost certain to run into storage problems using version 1. However, version 2 has added an option to develop the RAW file without importing it into the AF photo file. The file can be embedded, which is similar to the old method, but selecting linked gives Affinity Photo information about where the RAW file is, and the resulting AF photo file will be considerably smaller. In many cases, less than one one-hundredth of the size of the old AF photo file. Although Affinity apps might work well as replacements for Photoshop, Illustrator, and possibly InDesign, I really can't recommend them as a good choice to use instead of Lightroom or Lightroom Classic. And that's true even though Affinity has addressed the issue of file sizes. The photo app still lacks digital asset management. So should Affinity be compared to Adobe? Well, it seems to me that positioning Affinity next to Adobe, as I have actually done here, and is pretty common among reviewers, isn't really a valid comparison. As noted, Affinity can't compete with Adobe on audio, video, or website design. Adobe will always win when those capabilities are needed. Maybe it's better to simply say that Affinity has created a powerful set of applications and that those applications work together exceedingly well and that they offer a surprising amount of value. Those who need a digital asset manager such as Adobe Lightroom Classic or who need high-end publishing power provided by Adobe InDesign should clearly stick with Adobe products. But anyone who needs the capabilities of a design application, a pixel-based photo editor, and a basic publication design application will find the Affinity applications to be excellent choices. Also note that the Affinity applications are available for iPads in addition to Mac OS and Windows computers. Those who buy or upgrade all three applications have what Affinity calls the universal license. Without additional fees, the user can install the Affinity apps on their Windows and Mac OS computers, as well as on an iPad. The full price of the three applications is $170 for new users, $130 for those who are upgrading from version 1. The iPad applications don't yet have every tool and function found in the desktop applications, but sometimes they have capabilities not present on the desktop. To learn more about the Affinity apps or start a 30-day free trial, visit the Serif Affinity website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, one of my favorite utilities has become even better. 
Portable Apps makes portable versions of more than 450 applications, games, and utilities available for download and then keeps them updated for you. The Portable Apps application can be installed on a thumb drive so that users have immediate access to their preferred applications, even when they're away from their primary computer. But Portable Apps can also be installed on a computer. Why? Well, there might be applications you use infrequently, utilities or games, and you don't really want to install them in the usual way. After installing the Portable Apps application on the computer or thumb drive, the user selects apps to download and add to the utility. Adding apps later uses the same installation screen. Installed apps are grayed out on this screen, so you can't select them again. I'd like to see three changes made here. First, graying the installed apps isn't the default behavior. By default, there is no way to tell which applications are actually installed. Showing installed applications should be the default. Second, graying the installed applications is pretty darn subtle. Too subtle, in fact. I'd like to have the application display check marks for applications that have been installed. And third, there is no immediately obvious way to uninstall applications you no longer want. In fact, it's really quite easy to remove an app if you don't want it anymore. Just navigate to the portable apps directory and delete the folder that contains the app you no longer want. Easy, not obvious. I'd like the portable apps application to delete unwanted apps when the user clears the check mark that I would have displayed for installed apps. Ah, those are all minor quibbles, very minor, especially since this is a free application that organizes other free applications, provides an easy way to download them, and keeps them up to date. Portable Apps does request a donation, as do some of the free apps that it offers. There are several types of applications. The offerings range from completely free open source programs to commercial programs with free versions. Some are free for personal use. A few are formerly commercial applications that are no longer being developed and have been released publicly. There's a wide variety of utility applications. HWinfo is a good example. It's free for personal use. HWinfo displays an enormous amount of information about the computer it's running on, from basic information such as the operating system and computer name to highly detailed information such as the type of CPU, number of cores, and operating speed of each core. In addition to installing portable apps on a computer or a thumb drive, it can be installed in a cloud-based location such as Google Drive or Dropbox. When the user launches portable apps, it checks to see if there's a new version of the main application and, if so, offers to install it. Then it checks for new versions of any installed applications and offers to update any that aren't current. If you're in a hurry, you can just postpone the updates until later. Users can also install typefaces in portable apps and use the typefaces on any computer without needing to install them on the computer. TrueType, OpenType, TrueType Collection, and even some older font formats are all supported. To see a list of all the available apps, visit the Portable Apps directory. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Or to download the application, go to the download page. And yes, there's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com.
If you have a T-Mobile account, now would be a good time to watch even more carefully for phishing messages and other scams that might look like they originated at the cellular service provider. That's because a data breach late last year leaked some information about users to hackers. A faulty application program interface, or API, on T-Mobile's website gave crooks the access to some users' names, billing addresses, email addresses, phone numbers, dates of birth, T-Mobile account numbers, and information about their T-Mobile plans. Wow, that's a lot of information. Fortunately, payment card numbers, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, passwords, and PINs were not exposed. Now, that may be good, but crooks can do a lot with the information they do have. They could develop ways to trick users into giving them the missing information. Using names, email addresses, and the T-Mobile account number, a scammer might be able to convince a victim that they work for T-Mobile and entice the person to give them information they'd need to obtain money from a bank account or to steal the victim's identity. This isn't T-Mobile's first event in the data breach rodeo. A bug on the T-Mobile website in 2018 gave crooks access to customer data. Another breach in 2021 exposed the personal data of almost 50 million current and former customers. And it happened again earlier in 2022. T-Mobile told the Securities and Exchange Commission in 2021 that it had initiated a project with security experts to strengthen its protective and surveillance systems. Apparently, more work is still needed. Keeping a system secure is difficult. No matter how many people you have working to develop, test, and monitor your security system, they're always going to be outnumbered by individual and state-sponsored crooks who are looking for the smallest flaw that they can exploit. Fortunately, there are no security concerns about 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, we look back to 2003, when only about 10% of families in the U.S. had access to broadband internet connections. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>